Well, today, friends, we are in week two looking at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. It's actually the second letter that he wrote to them, but we don't have the first one, so we named this 1 Corinthians. Um, and Corinth is a, is a town in ancient Rome situated here. Uh, as, if we can put the slide up, there we go. That's where Corinth is, just west of Athens. And we're going to be reading together today from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. At the end of it, the first few verses of chapter 3 as well. So if we could put that up, I'll read along on here. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are, we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field God's building. This is the Word of God. Today, I want to consider two questions. First question is, what does it mean to live a spiritual life? And the second question is, what does Christian maturity look like? What does it mean to live a spiritual life? And what does Christian maturity look like from these verses? Now, it's fashionable today for people to describe themselves as being spiritual people. Or to say, I'm spiritual but not religious. People talk about mind, body and soul and holistic living. But what does it all mean? Regularly people say to me, I'm a spiritual person. Have you ever thought about what that might mean? It's, it's not a straightforward question. Can the Waterstones book list titles help us? If you type in spirituality into Waterstones, these are some of the books that come up. Big Panda and Tiny Dragon. The Comfort Book, The Joy of Small Things, Breath, and Healing is the New High. Does that help? To be spiritual in our society is to be someone who's concerned with inner realities, realities to do with the soul, to be thoughtful, to emphasize perhaps the inner dimension to life as opposed to the outer dimension of life. People say religion is a man-made construct, and we're going to reject that in pursuit of self-made 
spirituality. Religion is corrupt. I am pursuing a path of honesty and integrity and purity. I think that's what people mean when they say they're spiritual, not religious. But in the verses that we read, the Apostle Paul actually says the opposite, as we all see. He says, you're religious, but you're not spiritual. In John chapter 4, Jesus said to us that God is spirit. Therefore, all spirituality comes from God. And attempts to be spiritual without God means relying on man-made wisdom and techniques to engage with the divine. In other words, to be religious. If you're to pursue a path of spirituality without going through the God who is spirit or going to the God who is spirit, you're basically relying on the tips and hints and tricks and clues and philosophies of men and women, man-made. That's the definition of religion, some people would say. In verse 13, the Apostle Paul says this, We impart not a message of human wisdom, but of spiritual truth from the Spirit. If you acknowledge the existence or the reality of a spiritual realm, then you need to also, I would argue, consider not just the spiritual realm, but the original realm. Where do things originate? In the Bible, we are told that God is Father. And as a result of that, every man who procreates becomes a father, but their fatherliness is judged against God as Father. Every man whose father is a shadow of true God who is fathered. So we can say some men are good fathers, some men are bad fathers compared to the Father. That's our comparison. Equally, the Bible says that God is love. And so if we want to know what love is, we look at God. And therefore we can say about human behaviors, it's loving or not loving based on how much it aligns with God. It's true about spirit as well. God is spirit. And to begin a quest of spirituality without going to the source of spirituality that is God is to begin a study of a river downstream from its source. Now, whenever churches think about and talk about spirituality within church, and when you look at the letter of 1 Corinthians and discuss spirituality within a church, often people jump to chapters 12 to 14, where the Apostle Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit in the life of a church, what it looks like. But here, in the verses I read, the word Spirit appears more than it does in chapter 12 and twice as often as it does in chapter 14. You may have picked that up as I was reading it. I felt like I was saying the word Spirit a lot. We cannot understand the gifts of the Spirit until we understand the purpose and role of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter, the verses that I read, the Apostle Paul says that the Spirit is given for wisdom and discerning and understanding. To begin talking about the Holy Spirit's gifts and life and activity in a church without spiritual understanding is to discover a toolbox and just start throwing tools around without really knowing why they're given or what they're given for. Or it's to join others on a search party without asking what they're looking for, as was the case in this story that was in the news the other day. Tur in Turkey, a, a missing man joins a search party looking for himself. I don't know if you saw this. This was hilarious. And I thought to myself, I've got to find a way to get this into a sermon. Um, 
The, 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 the story says this, a missing man in Turkey accidentally joined his own search party for hours before realizing he was the person they were looking for, local media reports. Behan Mutu had been drinking with friends on Tuesday when he wandered into a forest in Bursa province. When he failed to return, his wife and friends alerted local authorities and a search party was sent out. Mr. Mutu, age 50, then stumbled across the search party and decided to join them. But when members of the search party began calling out his name, he replied, I'm here. <laughs> he was taken aside by one of the rescue workers to give a statement, and he reportedly told them, don't punish me too harshly, officer. My father will kill me. <laughs> so when we are, <laughs> to, to, we must start with understanding why the Spirit is given to a people before we start thinking about his activity in the church. Now, verse 14 to 16, uh, in, the, in the ESV translation, this is what he says. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The Apostle Paul says, natural people and spiritual people are different. To be natural, the Apostle Paul says, is to operate within this system. A natural person can really only understand ultimate reality by looking at nature, everything that's been revealed to us that we can see with our eyes. It's to examine it. It's to do the sciences. There's a lot you can gain from natural, ex natural explorations, of course. But natural people are different, Paul says, from spiritual people. Or spiritual realities are different from natural realities. Spiritual realities come from the Spirit. The Spirit of God is outside of the system of nature. As it says in verse 16, only God can know God. And no one can know God since God no one can know God's mind since God is outside of the system. We have this universe, everything that's been created, and God is separate from it, outside of it. Mankind, humanity, cannot know God any more than Harry Potter can know J.K. Rowling. The only way that Harry Potter could come to know J.K. Rowling is if she wrote herself into his story and entered his realm. So it is, we cannot know the spirit and spiritual things because we're natural people unless the spirit, God, reveals himself to us. What the Apostle Paul says is that non-believers, non-Christians, people who don't know the Lord Jesus cannot know God, he says. Or he says they cannot welcome or they cannot accept spiritual realities. Spiritual people. They may, we may be very thoughtful people. There may be very religious and devoted people, people who are very concerned with their inner life, good, noble-hearted, conscientious people who are seeking ultimate reality. And those people, human beings, natural people, can learn a lot about the world and about themselves and their inner life. But it isn't spirituality unless it comes from the Spirit. 
That's what the Apostle Paul's saying here. I think his logic holds up. It's like studying a light bulb in order to learn lots about the, in order to learn about the sun. You can learn lots about light, but it won't make you a helioseismologist. That's right. I googled that this morning. In verse 16, the Apostle Paul says this to the church, however, we have the mind of Christ. In other words, but we have the spirit of Christ. We can know the mind of God. We can know, this, we can know spiritual things because if you're a Christian, the spirit has broken into your life from outside the system, the natural world, supernatural, that's not necessarily the right word, extra natural things have broken in. Just as an aside, in those verses that I read, listen to this beautiful insight into the nature of God that Paul gives us. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him because they have to be spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but it is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord, that is God the Father, but we have the mind of Christ, that is Jesus. In one of the earliest letters, the Apostle Paul is clear. God is multi-personal. He's the Spirit. He's the Father. He's the Christ. It's just beautiful. Last little aside there. Spiritual people, the Apostle Paul says, are not necessarily just always thoughtful, conscientious, inner people concerned with that life, the life of the soul. Spiritual people are people with the Holy Spirit. People who, rather than following the wisdom of the world, we call that religion, have instead the wisdom of God revealed to them. Spiritual. What is the wisdom of God? Well, in the verses we looked at last week and have been considering together, The wisdom of God is not some higher spiritual plane that you need to work hard to attain to, something only for elite Christians. The wisdom and power of God is the cross of Christ revealed in the world. The Spirit is given to impart that wisdom to reveal Jesus to you, to reveal the cross to you, its purpose, why Jesus died. And all spiritual activity in the church is done on the basis of that understanding. All of the gifts that God gives to the Spirit, to the church, are used on that understanding. So that's the first question. What does a spiritual person look like and how do they live? They, they looks like someone with the Holy Spirit in them and they live as those with the understanding of the wisdom of God in the cross. Second question is, What does Christian maturity look like? Let's read this together. Brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere human beings? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. They will each be rewarded according to their labor, for we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Now, the Apostle Paul begins this letter to the church in Corinth, by addressing them as saints. That means holy ones. 
He then says in verse 12, we have received the Spirit of God. A saint, a holy one, is someone who has the Spirit of God in them. These Corinthians are Christians, since they have the Spirit, but their behavior is infantile, babyish, making them appear more like worldly, natural people than spiritual people. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you're not proper Christians. He's saying you have the Spirit, but you're very worldly. The Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses for the word infant there is the word nepios, from which we get the word nappy. (laughs) Nice little word fact for you. Um, Paul says, it's like you're wearing nappies, drinking milk still. Grow up, he says to the church. What are you doing? So what is the babyish behavior that they are doing that, that maturity is the opposite of? Babies are selfish by nature. They're driven only by their appetites and concerned only with having their needs met. That's not wrong. <laughs> That's what babies do. It's part of being a baby. But babies grow. And the contrast between worldly and spiritual people here is actually similar to a contrast that Paul uses elsewhere. He talks about people who live by the flesh and live by the Spirit, walk by the flesh, walk by the Spirit. In Galatians 5, verse 19, this is what he says. He gives a list of walking by the flesh, being, a, we might say from this verse, uh, being a worldly person. He says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in, in 1 John, the letter that he writes to his people, he describes that way of living as being like lusts. He talks about this. Um, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from God the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires will pass away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. Often what we think of when someone says the word sin, we think of things like that. Immorality, drunkenness, debauchery, all of that. But notice in Galatians 5, He lists 15 things, six of them have to do with divisions between people, competitiveness, jealousy, arguments. Now, I mentioned last week that Paul is writing a letter to a church who are in a state of absolute chaos. People are uh, visiting prostitutes, others are taking people to court, they are sleeping with their mother-in-law. This is not a healthy church. They're getting drunk at communion in church. And he writes to them. Now, if you and I were writing a letter to a church like that, with our kind of understanding of sin, we would start the letter by saying, what are you doing? Stop sleeping around. Stop getting drunk at church. Stop it. But what does he start with? What's the thing that's really got his goat? It's not that. He's going to come on to talk about that. Of course he is. But the thing that's really animating him, the thing that he sees as being a sign of their babyishness as Christians, is he says, One of you says, I follow Apollos. The other, I follow Paul. The other, I follow Cephas. He says, it's babyish. Stop it. To say, I follow so-and-so, to say, I, is to say, basically, I have a taste for this style, that person, that leader. They are my person. I'm going to gather around them. To say, 
I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, is to say that when Apollos preaches, I experience good feelings. Um, they said, I follow Paul, and this is the right way to go. Paul's a man of theology. Apollos, perhaps a man of personality. I'm this, I'm that. This is the beginnings of denominationalism, isn't it? It's not new. You know, these days people say, I follow the Roman church. We call them Roman Catholics. Others say, I follow Martin Luther. We call them the Lutherans. Others still say, I follow the English church. We call them Anglicans. Or others, I believe in baptism, in water, not in infant sprinkling. We call them the smug. I mean, the Baptists. Joke. That was a joke. That was a joke. Or others say, I believe in the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. We call them the charismatic church. Now, this is a big issue for Paul. It's what he starts his letter with. It's what he defines as infantile, babyish behavior. Me, me, me. My leader, my preference, my theology. I've got it right. And it's very easy to do. It's natural. Or Paul says it's worldly to think like that. And it's hard to get rid of that because we live in a celebrity-obsessed culture where I scroll through my Instagram feed and I'm like, oh, I want that. I want to be like them. I want their life. I want their, I want their wife and their kids. I'm happy with my wife and kids. I'm just saying. Another person might say. Actually, I, I, um, I know I, I fell foul of this and I got, I got told off in a very subtle and gentle way by someone. Um, I don't know if you know uh, Terry Virgo, who founded the family of churches that we're part of. He's a lovely man, very gracious, very godly, soft-hearted. Anyway, I was listening to a podcast one day of, of two globally well-known, influential American Christians, a man named Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. And they were discussing church globally, and they've traveled the world. They've seen lots of different movements of church come and go. And at one point, they said, what is... Then have you ever come across a movement that you think outshines the rest, that you think is really, really impressive? And both of them said, there's this small family of churches that started in the south of England called New Frontiers. I met their founder, Terry Virgo, and they were just wonderful. They seemed to have a beautiful balance of word and spirit. And they talked about New Frontiers, our types of churches. I thought, this is lovely. So I emailed Terry and said, Terry, Francis Chan has just given you the biggest shout-out on this podcast. Basically said, You've, you know, we've got it right. Terry replied to me in the, in the kind of rebuking way that only Terry can. I was like, Francis Chan! And he replied saying, how lovely that an American thinks so highly of us. And that was it. <laughs> and I was like, all right, fine. I read between the lines, Jez. You're a baby. That's infantile in the way that you think. The church here has centered their experiences on themselves and what they get out of their leaders than on the Word of God. Paul says to them, you're in nappies. I follow for me. And the reason for that is because to say, for me, the Bible means this, or for me, that leader's this, or that movement's got it right, and that person's the best is to interpret Christianity and the whole of the kind of historic church and say it's really all about me and my thinking and my take on reality. It's to pray not our Father as Jesus taught us, but my Father. It's to say the Bible means to me as though it doesn't mean that to anybody else. It's to put yourself at the center of things. Now with babies, after they're born few weeks go by and they smile at you and it's very exciting because this 
infant, this creature that I'm pouring all of my time and energy and effort into has given me something back. They've noticed another human being that ex existing in the world beyond them and they've smiled at it. Or what you see is, is quite funny when you get parents together who've got babies and they say, let's have a play date. And they get very excited, these parents, because they get their babies together to have this play date and the babies just ignore each other the whole time. The only time they notice one another is when one of them takes something that the other one wants. Because they're babies. They're selfish. They're just obsessed with themselves. To which any parent sees a baby like that and just says, grow up. <laughs> or you, you recognise they're babies. But Paul says to the church, grow up. It's not me, me, me. The church, the Christian faith is about maturity, is about love, in a word. And love, we have to be careful, love is like the word spiritual. In that when we hear the word love, it can make us feel fuzzy, but it means very little. The challenge we've got, you see, is the Greeks, and the Bible's originally written in Greek, the Greeks had lots of different words for love. They had romantic love, and they had friendship love, and they had charitable love, self-sacrificing love. We've just got love, because, you know, us um, Anglican, or Anglicans, what's the word? Vikings, Anglos, Anglo-Saxons, there it is. Um, we couldn't do a kind of complex dictionary of different types. We just love, we'll take love. <laughs> We're so suppressed in our emotions. Oh, that's not love, this is love, love. Anyway, that's... <laughs> you know, you know when you're, you're standing in front of a room full of 100 people and a thought comes into your mind, you think, I'll just follow that thought. <laughs> and then you find yourself going, I want to get back from this thought. This, is, this took me into weird places. Anyway, there we go. Love, as with spirituality, is demonstrated in the wisdom and power of the cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ, what we see is that love is giving of yourself for another. It's laying down your, of your preferences for the sake of others. It's learning to be other-centered. Love is, in verse 5 through to 9, you know, I planted, Apollos watered. What are we after all? We're just servants. Love is learning to work. It's learning to serve. And he's learning to trust God to do something with it. You see, saying, I'll only go to a church that has formal liturgy or with modern music or I'll only go to a church that speaks in tongues or I don't want to go to a church that speaks in tongues or I'll go to a church that's quiet rather than loudy, loudy, rowdy, loud is the blend. Um, or going to church essentially to have my needs met is to not go with a loving attitude. Or to be in churches where people are forever saying, please help us, please serve, please join a rotor, please do something. A church like that is an immature church. It's an infantile, babyish church. Maturity looks like love. It looks like dying to self, preferring others. I'm reading a book at the moment about um, a crisis among boys in our society, and um, this is another one of those thoughts that's just popped into my head. <laughs> we'll see where this one goes. Um, and he said the challenge that men and grandpas have in raising the young gener new generation is that for a lot of men and grandpas 30, 40 years ago, there was a very clear philosophy of what it meant to be a man. 
I live, therefore I serve. These days, more and more, not just boys, but all of us are growing up with, I live, therefore I deserve. Masculinity, maturity, looks like taking responsibility for another. It looks like laying down your rights. It looks like serving. It looks like love. That was better, that thought, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's hard to tell the difference between those thoughts that pop into my mind. Maturity in church looks like standing side by side, Paul alongside Apollos, playing their part, doing what we can in expectation that God is going to give some growth. He's going to produce some fruit. He's going to transform lives. He's going to build this community. And maturity, as with spirituality, then derives its lead from the wisdom of the cross. The more you think about the cross, the more you are delighted in the cross of Christ and what he did, the more that gets under your skin, the more you can begin to handle the commands of love. And Jesus did command his people, didn't he? He said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. As Chris said that Luke in Edinburgh reminded us, what are you going to do about it? It requires action. And the whole reason Paul's talking about this is because the natural man can't handle this. Because love for them is still very much me, 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 I, I, I. Love is really only something that makes me feel nice. I mean, our society has, in a lot of ways, reduced love to desire, to appetites, to carnal things. It's like, I want, that is love. Paul says, love is I die because of Christ. The natural man fights for prestige and reputation and status and celebrity and perfection and to have his needs met. The spiritual man and woman dies to self, serves. And it's called maturity because it involves growing. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, redwood trees, who isn't? Um, this next slide. Redwood trees so big that you can drive a car through some of them. Some of, them, some of the redwood trees in the States can grow up to 400 feet high. Uh, what's that? 36 stories. The height of a 36-story building. Very, very high. Ginormous um, trees. These trees only have a root structure that is five or six feet deep. And yet they can go 400 feet high. How? Because they have roots that go 100 feet out in width from their trunk. And their roots intertwine with other redwood roots and they end up supporting one another. They're able to go high because they are interconnected, intertwined with one another. I think that's a picture of what we're called to be as the church. We can be mature, we can grow, we can, we can embody Christ to the world. I mean, that is the highest calling anyone could hope to ever have on their life. Go on, be like Jesus in the world. How on earth are we going to do that? Put your roots out wide, intertwine them with others, brace yourself, learn to die for the sake of others, learn to serve for the sake of others. It's not I live, therefore I deserve, it's I live, therefore I serve. May God make us wise like that. May God make us truly spiritual. And may God keep us focused on the cross of Christ. And may we find in that our life and our joy as a people. Amen. Let's pray together and John's going to come and lead us in a song of response.